Hi. Um, let us open God's Word the, and read the entire um, chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached, that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, 
it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those who what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, surely, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrects good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as it is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, 
but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the Lord. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Glorious, perplexing, profound, all of that. Listen, right? Listen, listen to this. Listen in. Paul writes, I tell you a mystery. I've got a secret for you. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash or a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, drawing on Exodus language, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Tonight we explore this mystery. It is one of the most remarkable texts. It is probably the longest sustained treatment of the resurrection closest to the garden, empty garden tomb that day. Let's pray and explore it together. Father, we pray that the power that raised Christ from the dead will be at work in us tonight. Awaken our souls to the hope we have. Amen. Resurrection. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you is of first importance. There it is. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So Paul here calls the resurrection of first importance. Importance. In other words, there's nothing more important. The early Christians staked their lives on the resurrection. We learnt that in the first sermon in the series. And since then, we say in the Nicene Creed during communion, we say we look for the resurrection of the dead, and we look for the life of the world to come. We look for it. We want it. We desire it. We yearn for it like a person waiting for dawn after a long and painful night of suffering. The dawn. Resurrection. It is a life-transforming hope as we've been maintaining through our post-Easter series. And so the Apostle Peter calls it a living hope, not a dead hope. Something that's living. It shapes the way we live our lives today. I want you to imagine a world in which people were living by this hope. Their hearts lit by it their loves guided by it, their fears moderated by it, their choices made in the light of this hope. Choices now. 
Uh, somebody said at 4 p.m., don't think about this, I'm too busy living for now. I'm saying, I wonder wh whether leaning into this profound and substantial hope might transform lives now. Resurrection, it's also a dangerous idea. It means that some dare to live in hope. You know, you could put a, a gun to my head and say, I'll take your life if you don't do what I say, and I'll say back to them, you can't harm me. <laughs> it also means, of course, that some will defy the Messiah. If Jesus has been raised from the dead as God's king, some will defy the king. Peter Hitchens is the brother of the late atheist Christopher Hitchens. I don't think he's an atheist now. He was asked on Q&A a number of years ago, what so-called dangerous idea do you think each of you think, it was a panel, go through the panel, what, what so-called dangerous idea do you think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? Here's how the conversation went. You might have seen it on YouTube. Hitchens, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead, and that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. One panellist, Dan Savage, who, by the way, suggested population control as the good dangerous idea. <laughs> he clearly says in the background, if you listen to the YouTube, he clearly says, I'd have to agree with that. Tony Jones says, just quickly, he, like, he just wanted one idea that was self-explanatory. Just quickly, you can't leave it there. Why dangerous? And Peter Hitchin says, because it alters the whole of human behavior and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place from God in which there is justice and there is hope and therefore we have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It is why so many people turn against it. It's dangerous because, gee, I wish I could say something like that if I were given the microphone on a thing like, a place like Q&A. Where do you get that from? It's dangerous, of course, because it means there's one Messiah, not many kings, bosses, and despots, and therefore one justice, and one king, and one hope that alters everything. I'll give you an example that I learned in community group this week. My wife taught it to me. It was wonderful. In Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus was healing people and drawing crowds. And Herod heard about Jesus and wondered who Jesus was. And some said Elijah, some said the prophet. And John the Baptist says, uh, Herod says this. He says, when he heard about Jesus, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now I've just, you know... Look right past that verse in the future. But my wife pointed out that John had challenged the legitimacy of his marriage to Herodias. Herodias had left Herod's brother Philip for the power. And, but Herod, of course, liked John, liked to listen to John, warmed to John, but he was weak. He had John put in prison because Herodias demanded it, and he lobbed off uh, John the Baptist's head because a dancing teenage girl asked him to in a drunken feast. It's all very ugly. And he thinks, you know, well, I've killed John the Baptist. That's not good. I didn't want to. 
But, you know, problem solved. But he thinks, what if John's come back from the dead? What if God raised him from the dead? Like to judge me. My life, then my sins, can't be swept under the carpet. Laura said in Bible study uh, that that line prefigures the dangerous idea that Jesus himself will be raised as judge, quicken the dead. Resurrection. It's a stunning possibility that humans will one day rise from the dead, that death does not and will never and has never been able to get the last laugh. Death is not the victor. And that we will rise into a new world, a new heavens and a new earth. This is all next week. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, as the Apostle Peter says when he opens his letter. Everything that you experience with the senses, what you see, hear, taste, touch and smell, everything can perish, spoil or fade. Imagine a world in which things don't perish, spoil or fade. It's a surprising idea. C.S. Lewis was blessed with a friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Lord of the Rings, and one night they were walking together and after hours of listening to C.S. Lewis question certain aspects of the Christian faith, what about this, what about this, what about that, what about that, Tolkien pointed out the source of Lewis's resistance. He said, now imagine Tolkien saying this to Lewis. He said, your inability to believe stems from a failure of imagination on your part. He didn't mean that Christianity was a figment of imagination. Of course not. Rather, Lewis couldn't imagine that he was wrong. Couldn't imagine the possibilities. He couldn't see the truth. He couldn't imagine that he was wrong about God all this time and about life and death. He couldn't imagine that God had acted in Jesus as he promised of old or that hope was now possible, a living hope, or that God would one day create the world. You have no, you have no imagination that it's all, all, it's all doors closed. His heart was stubborn. He, he said he went home that night to his room in Magdalen and uh, prayed a sinner's prayer and famously said, I'm the, I'm the you, know the, you know what he said of himself? You know this, don't you? The, the most reluctant convert in all of England until you came along. I'd love you to come to faith tonight. So with hearts open and our minds full of possibility, we turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and our future. Here, Paul, in this passage, is arguing with people who can't imagine this hope. They are Christians who say that Jesus rose from the dead. They're happy with that. They're happy with the Easter story, but not that we will rise from the dead later, at a later time. That there is no resurrection of the dead later. They're sceptical about it, as you might be sceptical. Especially as time went on, they, you know, it's clear that Paul believed that Jesus would return soon. And more and more people are dying and staying dead. And they're like, well, you know, that's not the future. I think our society says that there is a similar widespread skepticism, and I think most many people are skeptical about resurrection from the dead. And I think popular thought about the fate of those who have died falls into one of two categories. I've got a third. The first category is the belief that the dead sort of somehow live on in heaven, take 
Prince William's remarks at the coronation concert last Sunday about the late Queen. He said, I quote, up there, fondly keeping an eye on us. Did he really mean that? Or was it just a manner of speaking? The other view, which sounds more realistic, is that the dead are dead, and then they are no more. They just rot. When my father's mother died when my father was four in 1944, which astounds me, my grandmother died before the war ended. Some of you might say, yeah, yeah, big, you know, remarkable. But Annie Pegg asked uh, her brother, my grandfather, my father's atheist father, she asked him, what do I tell young Mike? What do I tell four-year-old Mike? And he said, in grief, he said, just tell him she's dead. That's all he could say. The Christian faith, on the other hand, a third way, puts hope in the resurrection of the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul argues that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, by logic, Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. You've got the problem with God still. And then no hope for the future. We are, he says, in a moment of beautiful honesty, the most pitiful of all men. And I remain pitiful too, right here tonight, if Christ has not been raised from the dead. I turn out to be, I turn out to be a liar. But he affirms in verse 20 that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in this passage, I'm not going to deal with all of it, but in this passage there are three metaphors, pictures, that you need to have in mind when understanding your future if you're in Christ. And the first way, and this is in your outline, that's in your order of service, in your news sheet, and you might not have got one, or, but uh, if you do, it's on the uh, Churchill links. You know, you just go to the QR code, you can pick up the order of service. Three metaphors. One, first one, this is your future. You will wake up after having fallen asleep, falling asleep being a metaphor for death. Those who have fallen asleep for Paul are those who have already died. Right here there's a plaque that you can go and have a look at later to Louisa Langley, the former rector's wife in... Uh, she died in 1919, 102 years ago. And the plaque says that she fell asleep at Bishop's Court, which is the home of the bishop in Bendigo. She fell asleep at Bishop's Court, to which a minister friend of mine looked at that and said, I've fallen asleep at Bishop's Court dozens of times. The plaque means that she died there at Bishop's Court. But Jesus is her hope, and he means that she shall wake up because she's fought, that all she's done is fallen asleep. She's died, but she's fallen asleep. The resurrection means that you will wake up to eternal life. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery, a secret. We will not all sleep. Right, some of us might live, be alive when Christ returns, but whether that's true or whether, we've, whether we have fallen asleep, we will all be changed. It means some of us won't die, maybe, if Christ tarries, but all of us will be transformed or, or, or awakened. It's a metaphor. 
Second metaphor in the text is that Jesus is the first fruits ahead of a huge harvest of people like him. And this is the main idea for today. Verse 20, I think, is the key text sentence in the whole chapter. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, tick, and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits comes from the Jewish festival Passover called Pentecost, seven weeks after Passover, Exodus 23, where a Jewish farmer would take the first crop of, say, wheat, the first fruits of the harvest, and present it to God as an offering. It's a way of saying all of it's yours. It represents the rest to come, a great harvest to come. Now, I'm no farmer, but imagine you live on a peach farm and you're desperate for peaches, and you see the first one of the season. On one tree is one peach. Now, you see lots of others, but you nominate one, and you take that one peach, ripe as it is, and you put your mouth around it and your teeth on those, that beautiful curve of that gorgeous peach, and you bite in, and it is succulent and juicy and tasty and sweet, and you say to yourself, this tastes good, and you know what it means? It means the rest of it's good, all of it's good. You and I are like that, well, Christ is like that one peach, and we are like the great harvest to come. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, the taste of what is to come, and it tastes good. Jesus has overcome death, not just for himself, but for the rest of the crop, for millions who are in Christ. I believe the whole world. Prophet Daniel, Daniel says, multitudes who sleep, sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That's why it's a dangerous idea. Paul then has a little comparison between the man from the earth, Adam, and the second man, who is life. One, God breathed life into him, which is the life-giving spirit. One brought us to death, one gives us life. Verses 21 and 22 make the same point, really, that uh, sin and death have an entry point through a man, Adam, and that forgiveness and life have a second entry point to another man through Christ. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He's referring to the creation story and to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and he's saying something better is coming your way because of the second Adam. Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago as the first fruits. But he says there's a time differential between the first peach and the rest of the crop. So Christ raised from the dead, verse, in verse 23, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. We believe that God does not abandon his creation. He will raise it from the dead and us too. Now this is a simple idea, but it's profound and hard to fathom. That God will do to the world that he created and he loves that God will do to the world and to us what he did for Jesus, resurrected. Or a way of putting it is that the resurrection of Jesus is God doing in the middle of history what he promised to do at the end of history. And it is a physical resurrection, for God still cares about the world that he's created. He cares about your body. We're not Gnostics. 
and yet at the same time it is spiritual in the sense that it will be what God always wanted, your body always wanted it to be. I'm not the first person to say that there will be continuity to the world you currently live in, in continuity between this world and the life of the world to come, as well as discontinuity. In other words, things will be similar to what they are, but different to what they are. We shall be raised, not someone else. This is not reincarnation. We shall be raised as Christ was raised. Now, they recognized him, and he had a body. Christ could be touched after his resurrection. He ate food after his resurrection. He wasn't a ghost. He was new life. You will have a new life. And yet at the same time, there will be discontinuity to the world we live in. Your resurrection body will be glorious. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm getting older and I feel that glory doesn't quite describe uh, me and my body. Uh, You know, there's something decaying about the body that we currently live in. in. My resurrection body will be glorious, as Paul says in Philippians 3. The world that God has prepared for us will be new and beautiful and righteous, where God will be worshipped to God and the world will be enjoyed as it is intended to be. I want you to imagine a deep winter, and um, maybe you've experienced this if you grew up in Threadbow or something, or the Northern Hemisphere, you people from Scandinavia or Northern Europe or, or the United Kingdom, or as I spent three years in New York City, I've experienced a deep, deep winter where on the trees at least there appears no life, no leaves, no plants, nothing, it all dies. And it looks like there's no hope, no life. But then when the first spring comes, and I didn't notice it my first spring in New York, but my second and third I did. The first bud, you notice it, and it's only like three millimeters long. And then when you look at it, you see it, and then you realize there's a three millimeter bud on absolutely every tree that you see. That first bud And you say, this is the first of millions. Martin Luther famously said, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. He is the God of life. And C.S. Lewis again asks us to imagine a diver going down deep into the ocean when he asks you to consider the death and resurrection of Christ. And I quote, or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, classic Lewis. And then he writes, back up again, back to colour and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to discover. You are that dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. And so is the world. Lewis goes on, Jesus went down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. He is the first fruits. More on this next week. So, waking up, first of many. And lastly, He's like a seed dying in the ground with a shoot of life. When you sow a seed, it looks like it dies. And I mean a seed, by the way. I don't mean, you know, you go to the store and you get um, 
herbs, herbs with, uh, what's, what's uh, I did this at 4 p.m. and I, I cilantro is called coriander. Yeah, you, you buy coriander and you, uh, you have the little pot down there and you can use some that night and then you think actually I'll go and plant the rest of it. But the, but the, but the plant remains there when you plant it in the, the ground. This is not talking about that. We're talking about a seed, small, hard, lifeless. You plant, plant it in the ground and it looks like you've, it's died, like you've buried it. But you will be wrong if you think it's dead and gone. Paul says this in verse 36. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. It's a picture here. And then he writes in verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, as we all know. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, nakedness, naked, smelling. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's hard to think of something weaker than a dead body. Raised in power. Jesus says as much as in John 12, verse 23, it's hard not to think that Paul had this in mind when he wrote it. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. He's talking about his own death. But if it dies, it produces many seeds, first fruits. So let me conclude. If you believe in resurrection, then I can see in this text four implications for now, for living hope now, if you lean into this hope now. And there in your new sheet, you'll be able to endure remarkable hardship. There'll be ethical implications. You'll choose the right thing each time at work, with family. You'll be able to thirdly laugh at death, or at least taunt it. It's still serious. There's still a lot of grief involved. But there's a sense in which you'll be able to go, ha! And lastly, you'll give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Let me be brief. Firstly, you'll endure hardship. Verse 30, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, right? Floggings, prisons, potential death. Yes, as surely as I boast about you in Christ our Lord. Verse 32, if I fought wild beasts at Ephesus which could be a metaphor for a hardship, or it could be that he was thrown to the lions and escaped it. If I fought wild beasts at Ephesus with no more than human hopes, with this is all there is, then what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us live for today. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Live for now, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Without the resurrection of the dead, Paul would have and probably should have taken it easy and just gone through his bucket list before he kicked the bucket. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why I've never wanted a bucket list, not planning to make one. I'm nervous about them. What does it say about me that I believe that life ends soon. Someone once said, life is short, but they were lying, or at least they didn't know. The resurrection of the dead means this is not true. Paul says, I can go through enormous hardships. Later, in another letter, he'll say, 
the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the weight of glory to follow, the gravitas of hope to follow. Tim Keller once said, I think he was quoting someone else, all the, there will be a day when all the hardships of this life will feel like one lousy night in a bad motel. Yeah, you can endure it. They seem big, they'll eventually seem small. Not minimising the problems, just comparing them to the weight of glory to follow. Second, you'll choose the right thing each time. Verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character, right? You hang out with people who say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It'll lead you to act that way. Come back to your senses, Paul writes, as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. If there are no eternal consequences, then you can choose your own adventure. You can lob John the Baptist's head off and say, well, I got away with that. But those who believe in the resurrection cannot think that way, and so we come back to our senses. We don't try to get everything now. We don't try to sort of stuff in for even good reasons, as much money, as much sex, as much... You know, all of that leads to greed or base be, baseline behaviour. We don't try to fill our, our lives with every desire, for there is a resurrection of the dead, and so we choose the right thing in each moment, no matter what, for God will judge the quick and the dead. Third, you'll be able to sort of taunt death. Speaking of the resurrection to come in verse 54, Paul writes, let me tell you what will happen when A, B, and C. Let me tell you what will happen when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable. Let me tell you what happens when the mortal has been clothed with immortality. When that happens, the saying that is written will come true, that death has been swallowed up in victory, Isaiah 25. And here's the taunt, where, O death, is your victory? Paul speaking to death. Where, O death, is your sting? Come at me. There's no sting. You have no victory. It's a quote from Hosea. The idea, of course, is that death normally wins, no longer wins. And so we may taunt it. We may smile. We may dare to live in hope. We'll grieve, but not as those with no hope. We have the opportunity to die well. It's not easy growing older. It isn't, I know. And I've seen it. But there's an opportunity to grow stronger of heart. And lastly, we'll be able to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Verse 58, Therefore, my dear sisters and brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Um, don't give up. Give yourselves always fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. It'll have its, its end. If Christ is raised, you can stand strong, stand firm, stand confident. You could be thrown to the lions. You could be teased at work. You could... Uh, be ready to give up and then say to yourself, you know what, I'm not doing that. All that you do for God in Christ, because of Christ, in your evangelism, in your work and play and your friendships, none of it is in vain. It means something. And so I conclude, what if the resurrection isn't just a nice idea to be debated by bored theologians? And what if it was more than a metaphor for a revived relationship? resurrected this relationship, or a sports team that's come from behind, or the revival of a political career. I mean, I've got respect for John Howard, but, you know, calling your 
autobiography, Lazarus with a triple by heart. I mean, please, <laughs> this is not about a political career. Imagine if it all meant something bigger. What if it were not just for the individual, but for the universe? This is next week. What if you could have a new start like the resurrection of Jesus? What if the future of the new world and your future began in that garden on that day in 33 AD with a gloriously empty tomb? Let's pray. Father, tonight we choose to believe that the world isn't just what is here and now and what we see here, taste, touch and smell. It's not just sapiens who've lived for a while and will eventually die and be replaced, but rather a glorious hope for human being, the one, the, the, the one made in your image, and so we choose tonight to believe and have our lives transformed by the resurrection. Amen.